Okay, guys, back to our study, Song of Solomon. If uh, you want to turn there, uh, this is uh, of Solomon's thousand and five songs that he wrote. This is King Solomon's greatest hit, as we've said. A song about romantic love and devotion for one woman, uh, this maiden from Shunem. We refer to her sometimes as the Shulamite. Uh, who was the one true love of Solomon's life and, and many believed to be his first wife. It's a song that celebrates the marital joy experienced by a man and a woman, a husband and a wife, a song that demonstrates God's intention for uh, the romance and the loveliness of, of marriage. Now, this book, as we've said, is really a progression of a romantic story set in the context of an overall uh, love song. It is about a man, Solomon, and a woman, the Shulamite, uh, and they are um, in some ways looking back over uh, their married life, reflecting on the beauty of their young love, the beauty of the first consummation of their love, the beauty of their love following that, and, and what it means to grow older together. Looking back on what happened in their lives and what was going on in, in their hearts at, at that particular time, uh, sharing with us their thoughts, their, their desires, their feelings, uh, and their longings for one another. Last time we made several observations concerning the Song of Songs and marriage, and I just want to quickly go through them, and then we're going to add to that uh, list today. The first thing we said, our first observation was that marriage is awesome. Marriage is awesome. I mean, just as you, as you read uh, just the very opening chapter, it becomes very obvious that this is something to be cherished, something to be uh, celebrated. Yes, it is hard work. Uh, it is, uh, if you are married, you might agree with this statement, it is the hardest thing that you'll ever do. <laughs> it's a very difficult task. Um, it can be painful. Nevertheless, it is awesome. We know this to be true from our own experience. And we know it to be true from the simple fact that this book is the best of songs. And it is mainly an important and beautiful statement about marriage and sexuality. Uh, Second observation was that marriage is the best of all human relationships. There is nothing quite like it on this planet. Uh, It is the the first and the smallest social unit. Uh, At some point, a man and a woman leave their parents, according to Genesis chapter 2, and we'll spend... We'll make our way there, not this week, but most likely next week, go back to, to Genesis on this. But at some point, a man and a woman leave their parents and are married, and a new self-contained family unit is established. The husband and wife are, are recognized as one flesh, and as they bear children or even adopt them, if God allows them to do that, those children will expand the family and bring that potential to the next generation. So the family, it's, family itself is where society begins. Uh, it is the very foundation of every community. And as we, we looked at chapter 1 in the Song of Songs and began to trace the admiration uh, that this couple had for one another, uh, their intense desire to be together uh, and their strong emotions and, and the, the active pursuit that went, went on between the two of them, we, we see the uniqueness of this, this relationship. The third observation was that marriage should be celebrated by others. We, we noted how the daughters of Jerusalem in chapter 1 verse 4 praised the very idea of, of marriage, uh, affirming the worthiness of this man as the Shulamite offers her admiration and her praise of him. Uh, these, uh, these daughters of Jerusalem sort of sound out at different times throughout the book, a, a chorus, uh, and in this case, again, affirming uh, her selection, his selection, as well as, generally speaking, affirming the beauty of marriage. And this is what marriage should, should cause people to do. People that are looking on when, when, a, when a marriage is, is functioning the way that God designed for it to function, even those who are not married should look at that marriage and... And, and profess that it is, it is an awesome thing, a wonderful thing, and a thing to be celebrated. Uh, number four, we said marriage is a refuge from insecurity. We discussed a fundamental insecurity that the Shulamite maiden brought and that most women bring into a relationship, and that is an insecurity about how she looks. 
um, and men experience something similar in that they usually are insecure about whether or not they are really desirable. And the wonderful thing about marriage that we noted is that marriage can actually be a refuge from that latent uh, insecurity in women and that latent insecurity in in men. When a husband and a wife come and sort of bring to the table that those insecurities and find security in one another and, of course, their ultimate security in the person of Christ. So marriage is a, is a refuge from insecurity. And then the last thing we mentioned, number five, is that marriage is a place of affirmation, which somewhat sort of ties back into that fourth, fourth observation. Uh, we, again, saw this unfold in chapter one, him comparing her and her comparing him to things that are supremely valuable and desirable, uh, him praising her beauty and her affirming his sexual desirability, him affirming how lovely she is and her affirming how, how much that she desires and wants him. This is, this is what Song of Songs teaches us, that love begins, grows, and blossoms as verbally you express your appreciation and respect for one another. Now, I've been thinking lately about uh, wedding planning. Uh, our oldest son is uh, preparing for his marriage to his his fiance in January. So we were out. We went to dinner last night with the family, and then I uh, took Jude and took um, Caleb. Ran up to the to the store to get their their suits, uh, get them altered and, and fitted for that. Uh, and, and wedding planning can be stressful, uh, probably more for the, the moms involved than for the, for the men. Um, but it is a lot of fun. So there's these sort of waves of, I guess, through this wedding planning, there's these waves of stress, and then there's, but there's uh, plenty of fun uh, and excitement in that process to, to go around. In fact, I would say pre- premarital counseling is, is fun. Uh, I'm, I'm, I get the, the, the joy of doing that a lot. Um, I was not asked by my son um, to do their uh, premarital counseling, although I offered. Uh, but we, um, we got them set up. So they're, they're in their, I think they just finished up this last week, their third of seven uh, premarital uh, sessions. Uh, my daughter did not take me up on that either. I think I offered when she and her ta- and Taylor... Uh, we're getting married to uh, to be a part of that. But Pastor Shane uh, did did a good job uh, did a good job with that. I will have the privilege of actually doing the service this time, so that'll be different. So uh, got to walk my daughter down the aisle the first time, and then in this case, I'll be standing at the front and uh, actually sort of officiating that. So I've got to think through that. Uh, that's a great great opportunity. Um, so I'm just thinking through trying to be. You know, uh, you know, lighten it up a little bit, but not too much. So it'll be that'll be fun to think through. Uh, but every family, every family has elements of brokenness in it, and this is one of the things when you when you meet with couples in premarital counseling is you just you see that uh, every family has it, and so you're talking to them about their their siblings and their parents and their backgrounds, and you you see that. Uh, those things in the lives of both um, the the young man and in in the life of the and the background of the young lady. Uh, but what's amazing, I guess, is that in the midst of all of that brokenness, that there's something wonderful. There's there's something incredible. There's something beautiful. Something we might say otherworldly that happens uh, when 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 the bride walks down the aisle. It is a glorious moment. Uh, the father of the bride has that look, right, that says, my daughter is beautiful and I love her. And this man has no idea what he's getting into, right? <laughs> it's sort of that, that mixture, right? That, that sense of, of pride and, and honor and yet also just praying, you know, to yourself that the Lord would give them grace because you know the challenges, right? You know the difficulties are going to come, but it is beautiful. It's beautiful when the preacher declares to this man and to this woman by the authority vested in me by the Lord's church 
and according to the laws of the church in this state, I now pronounce you husband and wife. There is something glorious and amazing that happens in that moment. Hearts are brought together by God's sovereign design, and it's powerful, and, and it's amazing. And we're going to talk a little bit more about this uh, next time we get to that section in this book where we're really sort of focusing in on the issue of the wedding itself and the consummation of the, of the marriage. But what does Paul, the Apostle Paul say, right? This mystery is great, right? Or the ESV, I think, says this mystery is profound. The whole idea that you've got a man and a woman and God puts them together and the two become one flesh and marriage becomes the platform for something greater than marriage, something greater than sexuality, something greater than family life, something greater than feeling more secure, something greater and more than just just not being alone. Marriage platforms the beauty of the gospel, right? Platforms the beauty of the gospel. When you have two broken people that figure out how to love one another, that figure out how to live in harmony with one another, to care for one another, and to think about the other person's needs and their, their desires more than they are their own. There's something about that that proclaims the beauty and the power of God's grace. And what a gift, right? I mean, you think, for those of you men, right, that those of you men here who, who are married, you think, and you're, and you're saved, you're, you're thinking, God not only saved me from my sins, but he gave me a woman who knows me and yet she loves me. Awesome, right? Uh, so if you're married, you should be struck by the amazing reality of how God works. Uh, I love to hear how couples came to get together, uh, came to know each other, and, and eventually to be married. I, it, 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 again, just thinking about these things as I've been studying this book, you know, it takes me back to that time when I was in a Sunday school class, a college and career class. My best friend, Ari Durham, was sitting beside me, and my future wife walked in uh, that I had known from high school. Boom! <laughs> and Ari... And Ari says, Ari says, why don't you ask her out? And I'm like, are you insane? Are you crazy? But that was the beginning. I mean, his encouragement, like, come on, come on, you, you know, yeah. And then that acceptance of that invitation and then uh, and where that led us. So God knows. Here's the thing. I was thinking God, God knows exactly what you need and when you need it. So... If you're married, God knows exactly what you need to become more like Jesus. And he will use your spouse to accomplish his work. And you are so blessed to have that person in your life, to have someone that will challenge you, to have someone to share the joys and griefs of life with, to share things with them and have them give you feedback and reflect those things back to you and to be used by the Lord to form Christ in you. All right, enough rambling. Let's continue with the list, okay? Number six, uh, we'll just pick up, just kind of add, we're going to add three, I think, three more to our list today. Uh, A few more observations here. Observation number six, marriage is powerful because of its exclusivity. Marriage is powerful because of its exclusivity. There are things that happen within the confines of marriage that make marriage special because it is just the two of you and nobody else. It's exclusive. Song of Songs, if you're there, chapter 2. The bride continues because she was actually speaking the last uh, couple of verses of chapter 1. So she continues into chapter 2, which is where we left off, and says, I am the rose of Sharon, the lily of the valleys. Uh, so what she does here is um, she describes herself. It's not, it's, not, it's not very obvious. When we hear that, we think that she's basically bragging about how special she, she is. That's actually not the case. Okay? What, she's act, what she's actually just doing here is describing herself as some, someone that is rather common, albeit uh, attractive. So she's, she's not saying she's, I'm ugly, but she's not saying I'm the greatest either. She's just saying I'm, I'm, I'm one among others. In other words, she's not saying I'm nobody special because she is a flower, 
right? So she is a thing of beauty and life, but the idea here is that she is one among many, and this is not necessarily a compliment to herself. So again, going back to what we talked about uh, last week, there is this aspect of insecurity uh, that's still still here. And in verse 2, he hears what she says, and then he turns it and says this, like a lily among thorns, so is my darling among the maidens. So she says, essentially, I am just a flower in the fields, because the flowers that she's describing are actually very common in, in Palestine. He says, he takes that and he turns it and says basically this, no, you are a flower among thorns. So in comparison with the other single women, he's saying, you are not common, right? You, but you are, from my perspective, you are a rare beauty. And, and of all these women, my heart is set on you. So what he's doing here, I think, is he's simply communicating the exclusivity of his love, the fact that he has, he has chosen her. Uh, when, a, when a husband and wife commit themselves to one another, they are in effect saying, I choose you and only you. That relationship needs to be so sacred and so special that no other friend, no other person, no other image, no other hobby, no other career should take precedence over the importance of that relationship. So, apart from your relationship with Christ, there is no more important relationship on earth. So, uh, for me, that, that would mean that I need to be, first and foremost, God's kind of person. I mean, I just need to be, as an individual, I need to be a person who is, who is aiming to please God, right? That's the goal of life, to please the Lord, uh, 2 Corinthians 5.9. Uh, to, to be a, a man of a purity and integrity and all that. So it's really primarily about my, my walk with Christ, my relationship with Christ. But then besides focusing on, on being God's kind of person, then it's, I think, next is, is sort of, if you, if you were to put this in, uh, in order, it would be for me to be God's kind of partner. So I go from God's kind of person to being God's kind of partner. That is, that is the kind of husband that I need to be to then God's kind of parent to then God's kind of pastor, right? So now in, in real time, that isn't always that obvious, right? Because there are some times where I make decisions in my life where if you were to just look at the snapshot, I might choose something that is related to pastoring or to church life or ministry and actually choose in that moment to, 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 to neglect something with my kids or to neglect something with my wife. But on other occasions, I would be doing the opposite, right? I mean, I'm, there would be times when ministry calls, but I actually say no to ministry or I say no to my kids for the sake of, of my wife. So it's, it's not always that obvious when you just look at the decisions we make one at a time. Uh, it's really the movie reel, right? It's not the individual choice. It's the, it's, the, it's the combination of all the choices, right? And when you put all the choices in your life together, I think that's the pattern that ought to be reflected in your decision making. Is that it's Christ first, and then if you're married, it's your marriage, and then it's your, your kids, and then, and then the ministry. And the only reason I say... That, and even though at times ministry, you just have to, you have to make that a priority and set those other things aside is, is because Paul clearly, when he's talking about the role of an elder and qualifications, says basically your ability or your, your, your fittedness, your, your qualification to be a pastor flows out of the ministry of your home. So if you, if you can't manage your home, if, you're, if, you're, if your marriage is in shambles, if your if your relationship with your kids is falling apart, then you don't have a you don't have a ministry. I mean, you you don't have a platform to be able to do that. So it's it, it needs to be God's kind of person, being God's kind of partner, God's kind of parent, God's kind of pastor. I think uh, in in that particular order. 
So this is just something to think about as we, again, try each week to just think about application of these principles and, and implications. Do, do, your, uh, do your emotions uh, reflect that? When I, when I say reflect that, I'm talking about that issue of exclusivity uh, and the priority of your marriage relationship. Or, or we even say this, does your calendar reflect that? Okay. Does your day timer reflect that? Um, men, when you come home from work, are you regularly grumpy when you walk through the door? Uh, do your wife and kids like being around you? Do they like being around you? And that's different from saying, do they love you? Okay, because your, your, your wife may say, yes, I love him. <laughs> your kids, I love him. But do they like being around you? That's a different question, right? In other words, are you enjoyable to be around? It's a challenging question. Uh, do you take, men specifically, do you take out your frustration on everybody at home? Uh, men have a tendency to, to do that. Husbands and wives, do you treat your marriage as just one relationship among many? Or do you treat it as special and, and exclusive? Now, on a somewhat of a side note, it's interesting to consider... If you were to go to the Proverbs, which, again, get a lot of, uh, Solomon has a lot of things to say in the book of Proverbs, but if you think about this question, what, what are the most common things that threaten to erode a marriage according to the book of Proverbs? So if you were to just take the book of Proverbs and go through everything that Proverbs teaches about marriage, what would be the most common threats to, to uh, a marriage relationship? Well, for wives, there is certainly a hint, if, if not an explicit warning, about her unfaithfulness. Uh, there are some texts that deal with that, uh, others that deal with her lack of noble character and perhaps even a lack of, of productivity. But the greatest threat seems to be her tendency to be quarrelsome. Okay, and this is something that is mentioned numerous times. Proverbs 19, Proverbs 21, Proverbs 25, Proverbs 27. This idea that in private and sometimes in public, that a wife uh, is not supportive of her husband's call to be the leader in his home. She's, she's not empowering, we might say, the best characteristics of her husband's Christ-like leadership not building him up, but tearing him down, uh, wearing down her husband through unwarranted criticism and constant bickering, bringing sorrow, strife, and dishonor to her husband, a spreading corruption, eating away at the core of his being. Rather than being a crown on his head, she becomes a thorn in his side, making the home inhospitable and ultimately threatening the very structure of the home. So for the wife, that seems to be a, 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 a dominant a tendency in a wife's life is to, is to be a, a quarrelsome person. But for husbands, on the other hand, the greatest threat seems to be his tendency to be captivated and led astray by another. Or as one proverb says, to stray from his home, his home or from his place, or to stray away from the place that he's supposed to be. <laughs> so so whether, that is, whether that is home or whether that is other responsibilities, that he, there's a tendency for men to, to lose focus and to, to, be, to, to be led astray, uh, to not establish, if we're talking about specifically marriage, to not establish and maintain a delight in marital intimacy. So th- this is the major thrust in, in Proverbs chapters 5, 6, and 7, encouraging marital fidelity and avoiding the sin of adultery by way of command and by way of appeal. So if you want to just flip over there for just a minute, Proverbs chapter 6, husbands are told uh, in a nutshell to flee the fire of sinful sexual desire. Proverbs 6, verse 27 says, Can a man take fire in his bosom and his clothes not be burned? Or can a man walk on hot coals and his feet not be scorched? 
the obvious, obvious answer to both those is no. Verse 29, so is the one who goes into his neighbor's wife, whoever touches her will not go unpunished. Men do not despise a thief if he steals to satisfy himself when he is hungry. But when he is found, he must repay sevenfold. He must give all the substance of his house. The one who commits adultery with a woman is lacking sense. He, he who would destroy himself does it. Wounds and disgrace he will find, and his reproach will not be blotted out. For jealousy enrages a man, and he will not spare in the day of vengeance. He will not accept a ransom, nor will he be satisfied, though you give him many gifts. Of course, the, the, the consequences of, of, of infidelity here, uh, this stirring up of jealousies and just this comparison that, hey, if somebody, somebody takes steals something from you, and they offer to pay it back, you know, I mean, you might, you forgive them, yeah, you allow them to do that, make restitution, but in the case of infidelity and immorality, people are not so forgiving, um, and it leads to these destructive jealousies. But notice back in verse 27, it's this, he, he uses this metaphor of a fire and says that we're to, we're to flee the fire. Uh, fire, if you think about fire, fire grabs our attention, Right? And much like fire, sexual temptation has an unusual ability to grab our attention. It may startle us at first, but soon we feel compelled to learn more, to focus more closely, to desire a greater level of personal involvement and experience. But what he tells us here is that fire has to be taken seriously, right? Because fire spreads and fire burns. Right, we go, could go back to Proverbs chapter 5. Uh, Proverbs 5, just pick up in verse 8. He says there, again warning us of the, of the consequences of sexual sin, he says, keep your way far from her. This is the strange woman, the adulteress. Keep your way far from her and do not go near the door of her house or you will give your vigor to others and your years to the cruel one. So once encountered and indulged, Sexual temptation can spread through our lives like wildfire. One thing leads to another, and as conscience is defiled and each progressive step becomes easier, we go from being merely near the door of her house to giving our best strength to others. So this fire spreads. It spreads by consuming what it touches and grows by destroying what it envelops. So Solomon's simply saying that the allure, the allure of sexual infidelity is really a masquerade, right? And what Proverbs teaches us is that we have to guard our hearts. We have to watch where we go, and we have to watch what we are focusing on. Uh, visual fixation for men, and in the case of even women, e- emotional or romantic fixation can be, be a real problem. And for men, this involves looking at other women in a way that leads to sexual arousal. Allowing glances to turn into gazes. And we could just summarize it this way to say marital infidelity always involves fixation. It always involves that. But here's the thing. Fixation is also the solution. Fixation is also the solution. Being focused and fixated on your wife. That's the solution. Notice what he says down in verse 15. Proverbs 15, 5, 15. Drink water from your own cistern and fresh water from your own well. Should your springs be dispersed abroad, streams of water in the streets, let them be yours alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. As a loving hind and graceful doe, let her breast satisfy you at all times. Be exhilarated always with her love. For why should you, my son, be exhilarated with an adulteress and embrace the bosom of a foreigner? For the ways of a man are before the eyes of the Lord, and he watches all his paths. His own iniquities will capture the wicked, and he will be held with the cords of his sin. He will die for lack of instruction, and in the greatness of his folly, he will go astray. So it's not enough 
for husbands to flee the fire of sinful sexual desire, they must also drink the water of holy sexual desire. So this is the flip side. They must find romantic and sexual gratification freely and exclusively in their spouse. Charles Bridges says this, this proverb, he says, Desire after forbidden enjoyments naturally springs from dissatisfaction with the blessing in possession. Think about that. Desire after forbidden enjoyments naturally springs from dissatisfaction with the blessing in possession. And if that's the case, then we ought to do all that we can to be fully satisfied in and by that very blessing, as Bridges calls it, that very blessing in possession, namely our wives. So this is the picture that is painted for us in Proverbs 5. A portrait that tells us that the way to full sexual satisfaction is within the free, open, joyful channel of the marital relationship. And this is the bold encouragement, that a husband find consistent sexual satisfaction in his wife's body and consistent emotional attraction in her love. Or as we might say, full satisfaction and exclusive satisfaction. So you could just look in verse 15, and you could just, just the terms, I mean, they just jump off the page. Verse 15, your own cistern, your own well. Verse 16, your springs. 17, yours alone and not for strangers. 18, your fountain, the wife of your youth. Let her breast satisfy you. Be exhilarated always with her love. So you, you, you can't miss the emphasis in these verses of the exclusive mutual possession of one another that is such a precious and essential part of marriage. And this proverb instructs and encourages married couples to quench their sexual thirst by means of one another, finding exclusive sexual satisfaction in God's gift of a spouse, which leads to this appeal there in verse 20, for why should you, my son, be exhilarated with an adulteress and embrace the bosom of a foreigner? In other words, he's just simply saying, why look elsewhere when God's plan for your sexual fulfillment is found in the person of your very own spouse? Uh, Interestingly, the word for being exhilarated there in verse 19 uh, and in verse 20 uh, is is also translated, and some of you may have, uh, this is uh, being exhilarated is in the New American Standard. Uh, It's also translated as intoxicated. How many of you have that as a translation? What is that? Is that ESV? ESV is intoxicated. Ravished is another translation. Enraptured or captivated is another way to translate that. It's the same, it's, it's the same term, though, that what I find interesting is that in verse 23, the same term pops up. He will die for lack of instruction, and in the greatness of his folly, he will go astray. The, the term there, go astray, is the same word. So you say, well, how do those go together? How does going astray <laughs> and being intoxicated <laughs> go together? Why is one saying be exhilarated? Why does one say be captivated by your wife in this way and then say, but if you, if you don't, then you're going to, what? You're going to use the same term. You're going to go astray. So, the idea is of swerving. It's the idea of erring. And, and what, what basically, I think, I can't prove this, but the best I can tell is that this idea of erring or swerving became associated with drunkenness. So it was a sense of being intoxicated. And what do you do when you're intoxicated? You err, right? So you're under the control of something that causes you to swerve that causes you to to err. And I think what he's saying to husbands is, don't be turned aside and brought under the influence of a strange woman. The, or you might call her the outsider, right? Because it's as if this exclusivity, it's like you drew a circle around your, your wife, okay? Anyone, any other female uh, uh, apart from her is an outsider, okay? 
I think what he's saying is that don't don't be brought under the influence of the outsider. Rather, be turned aside and brought under the influence of your wife's beauty. Be brought under the captivating influence of your wife's words, of your wife's opinions, of your wife's body, of your wife's love. So, we must drink the water. Right? It's a command to be consistently and diligently obeyed. This is not a suggestion. Verse 15 is a command. Drink. Verse 16, let them be yours alone. It's a command. Rejoice. In verse 18 is a command. That is to say that if you intend to take seriously the sexual prohibition, right, the warnings, don't, don't play with the fire, right? If you're going to take that seriously, which you should, then you should also take seriously the sexual permission as well. Or as Bridges goes on to say, tender, well-regulated domestic affection. You can tell he's, a, he's a back in the day. Tender, well-regulated domestic affection is the best defense against the vagrant desires of unlawful passions. So it's an important commitment. A commitment that is easy to neglect in the midst of our, our other obligations, d- difficult to... to uh, Stay focused on in light of the challenges of parenthood and careers and, and the things we do in the ministry and other responsibilities that stretch the limits of our time and energy. But it's, it is this, this commitment to the proper channeling of one's, one another's sexual energies in marriage uh, is one that should be watched closely and renewed regularly. And it is a key ingredient of a lifelong, faithful, satisfying, and God-glorifying Marriage. So marriage is powerful because of its exclusivity. All right, back to Song of Songs. Number seven, another observation. Marriage involves strong and deep emotions. Marriage involves strong and deep emotions. So he he says of her that she is the woman among all women. And then she says of him that he is the man among all men. Verse three, like an apple tree. Among the trees of the forest, so is my beloved among the young men. In his shade I took great delight and sat down, and his fruit was sweet to my taste. So she's, she sits under, if you will, the shade of his protection uh, and expresses further joy in his love. Verse 4, he has brought me to his banquet hall, which is just a, it's a reference to joy, I think. It's a, it's a reference to a place of great joy. So she's simply saying, he, he brings me to that place. He brings me to a place of great joy. And again, I would just encourage you to examine yourself. Is your relationship, is your marriage a place of great joy? Is your home a place of great joy? Is it a place of, of laughter? Do your kids know that you have fun in your marriage? Do they know that? Would they say that your house or your marriage or your relationship, that home environment atmosphere, is it fun or is it stressful? So just some things to, to think about. The end of verse 4, she says this, and his banner over me is love. So there's this proud and public acknowledgement. It's as if she say, I am proud to be married to you. I am proud to be in relationship with you. I love being known as your wife. And for him, it's to say, I love being known as your husband. Right? I, I, am, I am proud of you. Again, how long has it been since, since you said something of that nature? I am proud of this in, in your life. I, I commend you for this. This is just an amazing thing about you. I don't know how you do that. I don't know how you get that done. Those types of, of words of affirmation and, and admiration. Verse 5, sustain me with raisin cakes, refresh me with apples, because I am lovesick. Let his left hand be under my head and his right hand embrace me. Again, this a picture of physical safety and security. That is to say that this man, King Solomon, satisfied the very things that she desired in their relationship. Protection, intimate friendship, and public identification as her beloved. And then she even appeals to the other women. Verse 7, I adjure you, here come the daughters, the daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or by the hinds of the field, 
that you do not arouse or awaken my love until she pleases. Now, what's going to happen is you're going to see this term for arouse or awaken. It's going to pop up in several places. It pops up here. It's going to, we're going to see it again in chapter 3, chapter 4, chapter 5, chapter 8. And if you look, and I suggested this to you when we went last week and the week before, we just talk about, we talked about a, a possible outline for this book. If you, if you do take the view that this is, there's, there's chronology being played out, we know the center point and the focus of the book is the day of the wedding, uh, that center section of the book. What we don't, maybe what, where there was maybe some disagreement is, are the, are the chapters that precede that dealing with a time of courtship leading up to the wedding day? Or on both sides of that center point, are we talking about the marriage relationship? So I lean more towards this, this sense of idea of courtship, um, and I gave reasons, reasons for that uh, last week. So if that's true, and this couple is not married yet, okay, so if, if, the, if this chapter in particular is dealing with their relationship right before they're actually married, then, then I think what's going on here is that when they begin to consider all that they're feeling I mean, the, the, the power and the beauty of what they're feeling for one another, it's as if she suddenly realizes, oh, wait a minute. <laughs> remember, 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 don't awaken love until it's time. Because what I feel is so deep. This is what you're saying. What, what, I, if what, what I feel is so deep and what I feel is so strong, it's so beautiful, but it needs to be channeled in the right direction. This is the beautiful power of full emotion, but it needs not be awakened until it's time. One commentator says this, It is clear that the couple is already in love, but they must allow their love to proceed at its proper pace, which includes waiting until the right time to consummate it. So she is celebrating the power of love, but that also comes with a warning, right? It comes with this warning to be patient, not to hurry love, but to wait for it to, to blossom. Uh, one more. Observation number eight. Marital love overcomes obstacles and challenges. Marital love overcomes obstacles and challenges. Part of the mystery of marriage is that it has the ability to overcome challenges and difficulties. From chapter 2, verse 8, through chapter 3, verse 5, there are barriers that, hap- that happen to their love or barriers that happen to their desire for one another. In chapter 2, verse 8, she hears his voice, and, and the idea is that there is some kind of separation that exists. Verse 8, listen, my beloved, behold, he is coming, climbing on the mountains, leaping on the hills. So he is coming to her. But there are mountains and hills. Verse 9, My beloved is like a gazelle or a young stag. Behold, he is standing behind our wall. He is looking through the windows. He is peering through the lattice. Again, the idea is that there's some kind of separation between them. Verse 10, My beloved responded and said to me, Arise, my darling, my beautiful one, and come along. For behold, the winter is past, the rain is over and gone. The flowers have already appeared in the land. The time has arrived for pruning the vines and the voice of the turtle dove has been heard in our land. The fig tree has ripened its figs and the vines in blossom have given forth their fragrance. Arise, my darling, my beautiful one, and come along. O oh, my dove, verse 14, in the clefts of the rocks of the rock, in the secret place of the steep pathway, let me see your form, let me hear your voice, for your voice is sweet and your form is lovely. So clearly there is this longing to be together, Winter passed, rains over, flowers appearing, vines blooming, use springtime as a picture of their robust, growing love for one another. They are actively seeking one another's presence. Verse 15, catch the foxes for us, the little foxes that are ruining the vineyards while our vineyards are in blossom. That is to say, there are things that are challenging in their relationship in this time before they are married. Just as young foxes can ruin a vineyard by eating the blossoms of spring, so can small problems ruin relationships. 
And so there were realists in that sense, but their realism, particularly her realism, doesn't turn into pessimism. Rather, it drives her to reinforce the confession of her love, verse 16, My beloved is mine, and I am his. He pastures his flock among the lilies until the cool of the day when the shadows flee away. Turn, my beloved, and be like a gazelle or a young stag on the mountains of Bethar. So she's, she's asking him to turn, to come back, like something has, has caused an issue, a problem, and this is what godly couples do, right? They commit to work through their troubles, not walk away from them. And then in these first four verses of chapter 3, she has, we might say she has a dream or you might say a nightmare. Verse 1, on my bed night after night I sought him whom my soul loves. I sought him, but I did not find him. I must arise now and go about the city in the streets and in the squares. I must seek him whom my soul loves. I sought him, but I did not find him. The watchmen who make the rounds in the city found me, and I said, Have you seen him whom my soul loves? Scarcely had had I left them when I found him whom my soul loves. I held on to him and would not let him go until I had brought him to my mother's house and into the room of her who conceived me. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or by the hinds, of the field that you will not arouse or awaken my love until she pleases. So what about you? What are some of the challenges that you face in your relationship? What are some of the obstacles that you face in the context of your marriage? Is it communication? Is communication a problem? For some of you, it's just schedule. It's busyness, right? I mean, you you may feel like you're going here and going there, not spending enough time with each other, not spending quality time together. Maybe your different family backgrounds that shaped your perspectives are becoming more evident now that you've been married a few years and it's becoming a problem and you're trying to figure out how to take two very different family experiences uh, to know what your roles are and how, how all of those things work out. Maybe it's a lack of forgiveness and grace Uh, Maybe you have different spiritual passions. Maybe one of you is excited about certain things, but the other person not so much. Uh, Maybe you have different levels of sexual desire. I would say this, in, in light of the mystery of marriage, and in light of the exclusivity of marriage, and in light of what your marriage could be in the world, what is the one thing that you could change or improve in your marriage over the next three months? And what are the steps that you need, that, that need to happen in, in order for you to get there? So again, just n- not getting too overwhelmed, right? I mean, my prayer is that as we just we're talking about all these issues, that little, I mean, little thing, alarms are going off, like light bulb is going off. And you're just saying that's an issue. You're right. That man, I, I need. We need to address that. We need to work on that. So I just don't want you to be overwhelmed with all of it, right? Uh, so I'm, I'm thinking of what is the one thing, right? That's all I'm talking about is what is the one thing that would make a huge difference in your marriage? Is it your communication? Is it your, your differences about sexuality? Is it this in-law thing? Is it something in your parenting? Is it your schedules? Whatever it is. But, but take the time to spell that out clearly. I mean, to really know what that is and get locked in on that and then take specific steps in that direction. So what I find is that, that men and, I mean, men when it comes to business projects and teams and even women with, with all the things that they can do administratively, organizationally, organizationally men and women can, can do a lot of wonderful things, but sometimes I'll, you know, I mean, I'll challenge men that if, they, if, they, if, if, if men ran their business like they run their marriage, they would be out of a job in three months. Because they can, man, they can put together strategic plans, they can identify problems and threats in their business context, and they can put together, these are the ten things we're going to do, and they can assign those tasks out, and they can hold people accountable, but they never think that way about their marriage relationship. So the reality is there's, there are a lot of couples, a lot of Christian couples that do not know where they're going. They do not know where they're going, and they do not 
they do not do what they do in marriage with intentionality. They're really not assessing their marriage relationship, and they're really not just saying, what's that one thing we could work on just for the next few months? And then actually figuring out what do we need to specifically do to address that so that that thing changes. I mean, there's, there's, there is measurable change between now and in three months. We can look back and say, is that any different? Oh, absolutely, it's different. So get it, get it down to that kind of specificity. I mean, read a book together. Say, we need to talk to another married couple, an older couple that's been married longer than us or who has a good marriage, something. But you've got to get those things down into very practical steps. So what we have here is the idea that marriage has obstacles, marriage has challenges, but you have to keep reminding yourself that no matter what those obstacles are, marriage was God's idea. He put you together with your spouse. He knew exactly what he was doing with all of your family backgrounds and all of your weaknesses and all of your struggles and all of your sins and failures. And there is nothing that you face that you don't have sufficient grace to face together. So when you find marriage to be difficult and challenging, it's important to remind yourself that this was God's idea and that he is the architect and therefore go back to the foundation and learn what he has to say about it and how it works and do what he says. So marriage, marriage was God's idea and marriage is a gift from God. And no matter what the state of your, your marriage is, there's hope. There's hope. And marriage is absolutely worth, worth fighting for. So what we'll do next time, we'll, we'll get into um, this section regarding the actual wedding. Um, I think here in, in the, the second part of chapter 3 and into chapter 4, and like I said, we'll probably take some time and go back to Genesis uh, chapter 2 as well as Genesis chapter 3 and um, implications of the curse and the fall of man and what the impact that that's had on on marriage. And we didn't spend much time really at all today in the New Testament and what what the particular, what Paul has to say about it, but in time we'll also be going to Ephesians 5 and into Colossians and, and um, uh, soaking up as much as we can of what those passages have to teach us. Okay, So keep reading. I encourage you to do that. Just read through this book. Um, and again, get, be encouraged by it, but as you're challenged and God convicts you, Going to get get these things down into practical things you can do to um, take advantage of this and to improve your your marriage relationship.